You're listening to The Top Line, brought to you by Fierce Pharma and Fierce Biotech. I'm your host, Ayla Ellison. Gene editing's therapeutic application has transitioned from hypothetical to reality, marked by the recent approval of a CRISPR-based therapy for sickle cell and beta-thalassemia. In the wake of these developments, new biotechs are springing up, spurred by the advancements that redefined what conditions might soon become treatable. One contender in this rapidly changing landscape is Verve Therapeutics. Fierce Biotech's Max Bayer sat down with the company's CEO, Dr. Saeg Kadirason, to discuss how Verve intends to distinguish itself. They also chat about what drove Dr. Kadirason to biotech after more than 20 years as a cardiologist and geneticist. Here they are. Gene editing no longer something that's not tangible. It's very tangible. There's a lot of biotechs. With gene editors in the clinic, we're seeing the first uh, use of CRISPR approved at the tail end of last year. Maybe just elaborate on that progress over the last 10 years and where it sits right now with respect to legitimate medicines using the technology that is consistently changing and being updated and improving. And now we're seeing clinical application of that. Thank you very much, Max, for having me on board. Um, really excited to, to chat with you. Uh, maybe I take a step back and just highlight kind of our own journey. I think that it's it's really a journey about CRISPR and 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 the progress over the last few years. Uh, my background is as a cardiologist and a human geneticist, and I now lead Verve Therapeutics. And prior to this role, founding the company and leading Verve, I did research on the genetics of heart attack, and I shared the laboratory floor with somebody named Fang Zhang, one of the early pioneers of CRISPR, and Fang was involved with the technology in 2013, 14, 12, in that same range as Emmanuel Charpentier and Jennifer Doudna. And we had been working on heart disease and trying to understand risk and resistance. And we found a bunch of people who were resistant to heart attack, and they had certain genes naturally turned off in the liver, had lifelong low cholesterol, and were and as a result, didn't get heart attacks. We had a list of those genes, about eight of them, and that was really the bulk of the work I had done as an academic. In the meantime, Fung had been working on CRISPR, and it became clear that one could use CRISPR to turn off genes, particularly in the liver. And then the American Heart Association came along and said, hey, we'd like ideas to cure heart disease, cure coronary heart disease, heart attack. So in 2016, Fung and I and a couple of others put together a, pro- a proposal to develop um, a medicine that might mimic the natural resistance mutations that we saw in the liver that turned off specific cholesterol-raising genes. And we said, all right, let's combine an editor and a guide and, and then put that into a delivery system. We actually chose lipid nanoparticles back then as the proposal. And then we'd infuse that into the bloodstream and it would go to the liver and idea would be that it would turn off a given gene, for example, PCSK9 to lower cholesterol. So this was the proposal, believe it or not, Max, back in 2016. Now, we didn't end up winning this competition from the American Heart Association. We decided just to go ahead and do it. And over the next couple of years, basically built a small team, got some funding, got the intellectual property in place to be able to develop this kind of medicine. And importantly, the IP that we got in place 
was not just for the original CRISPR-Cas9 technology, but also a new kid on the block, base editing at the time. And because we were technology flexible, we had a very focused mission. We knew what genes we wanted to turn off. We knew we pro- what problem we wanted to solve, heart attack, and we knew how we wanted to do it. And so it didn't matter to us whether we used a base editor or a standard CRISPR nuclease. So we got access to both. And then that brought us to 2018, Max. And 2018, we're basically saying to the world, hey, we're going to do this. We're not going to do it for rare disease or cancer, which is where most people have been, or ex vivo, but we're going to really try to tackle the leading cause of death in the world, heart disease. And that was a little bit of a surprise to most people. And, and, and some people were not that enthusiastic about that. But at the time, it also, base editing had not really been shown to work much more than in cells. So, and what we've been able to do over the last few years, that journey from 2018 to last year, five-year period is um, evaluate both of these technologies, Cas9 and base editing in cells, mice, and non-human primates. Um, Got the base editing technology to work in non-human primates. We were the first to do that. And that paper was published uh, in Nature uh, a couple of years ago. Uh, and then and then pick the base end technology. We can talk about why maybe in a couple of minutes for our lead product. And then took that product to patients, dosed our first patient in 22. And then last year in November, released the data for the first 10 patients showing that, hey, this stuff works in patients. And so it's been an amazing journey. And as you started with, it is reality right now. Reality for sickle cell disease Intelia is pursuing it for a couple of other diseases, in vivo hereditary angioedema, um, amyloidosis. Uh, we're pursuing it for heart attack and heterozygous familial hypercholesterolemia. And then as there's a range of other things that are being, being approached, uh, other diseases. Really rapid, I think, development from discovery in 2012 uh, to now, just 11 years later, uh, a range of therapeutic opportunities. Can you just, just give a quick primer on base editing? You, you obviously mentioned it as a focus of, of Verve's a- application and maybe how that differentiates from what was around at the time at which you were getting that 2016 proposal together. Because I also just think that very much exemplifies the swiftness with which new gene editing applications are coming to the fold. And, and even for Verve, since applying base editing, now you have prime editing, which is the basis for new biotechs. And that is cons- constantly changing and updating in the uses. Just so maybe just how base editing fits into the evolution of the technology as a whole. Yeah. And there's a range of tools that are available. And I think the key for us, again, we weren't wedded to any one tool, but really to evaluate a set of tools and find the best one for the job that's needed. In our case, the job that was needed was to turn off a gene Mm -hmm. uh, in the liver permanently. And, And turning off a gene can be done by couple of different ways. One is what the standard CRISPR-Cas9 does. And if you recall, the way that works is when given a guide RNA, which is the the postal address, the editor, the Cas9, it basically will go to that place in the genome directed to by the guide. And then the business end of Cas9 is a genetic scissors. It cuts DNA at that spot that you directed it to using the guide and then that's one way to turn off the gene. So that's standard CRISPR-Cas9. What um, base editing is, 
it uh, leverages that um, GPS localization feature of Cas9. So in the context of a guide, it will go to the right place in the genome. But instead of genetic scissors, that functionality has been replaced by a pencil and eraser type functionality where um, a single letter of DNA, let's say an A, is changed chemically to a G. And that is a base editor. And there's uh, an adenine base editor is the one that actually changes an A to a G. Now, this is a very clever invention by David Liu, who's at Harvard and the Broad Institute. And, and so that, that's really what base editing is. Now, we, again, evaluated both the genetic scissors as well as the pencil and eraser approach to turn off uh, PCSK9 in cells, mice, and non-human primates, and then picked base editing for our first couple of programs because we found it to be equally effective but had a theoretical safety advantage. Uh, theoretical, which is that when you do the cutting, sometimes uh, with the genetic scissors, sometimes you can get kind of rearrangements of DNA, so-called translocations, in a low percentage of the time. Uh, with base editing, you don't get that because uh, it's not cutting DNA. It's not leading to double-strand breaks. And so we really thought, hey, we ultimately want to take this medicine to lots of patients with heart disease, the leading cause of death in the world. And so we said, we'll take every inch of kind of theoretical safety advantage we can. And that's why we chose base editing. I think there is this tendency to, to describe this evolution of technologies as Gen 1, Gen 2, Gen 3, with kind of the implication that Gen 2 is better than Gen 1, Gen 3 is better than Gen 2, that kind of thing. Yeah. Um, and it, it does not have to be that way at all. I think that for any given task at hand, you could have multiple tools that could do a good job and, and good enough job to have a product that really makes a difference for a patient. And I think that's the better way to look at it. And it's great to have all, all these new technologies coming on board, uh, but they don't necess- it doesn't necessarily mean that automatically the newest one is the best one, for example, for the job at hand. And and admittedly, that's often how I think of things, especially on gene editing, just given its infancy. But I think to your point, maybe you just look no further than cancer, where checkpoint inhibitors are maybe not attracting the freshest round of new venture capital in terms of oncology drug development. But Keytruda is still a powerhouse and has proven to be one of the most successful drugs for solid tumors as it stands right now. So if you were to describe cancer uh, drug development in terms of version one and two, then it would validate your thinking, which is that just because something is version one or one technology that is now being updated or new things are coming into the full, that doesn't mean that it has zero application anymore. And that's not necessarily how that operates. Yeah. I think that people are always looking to develop a product, get it to patients to to serve an unmet need, and then there still may be residual unmet needs even when that product comes to market. And then you develop and iterate, right, to develop another version that might solve whatever residual issues there are with the product that you have in hand. That's that's typically how drug development has gone, and I believe that's how gene editing will go as well. Just given that you have existed in this field both as a cardiologist and a geneticist far before you started Verve, how are you just thinking about what you see in terms of new applications and thinking this is one that maybe is not better for us or better than base editing, or this is something that maybe we should be considering this technology and applying it? Like, how are you, because you have such a background and experience parsing through this before it even turned into your own biotech, how are you constantly assessing the science and deciding what might be worth applying? 
Yeah, I think that there are two aspects to figuring out what editing tool you want to use, right? One is what's the edit you want to make? There's a kind of a big categories of things you want to do. Sometimes mm-hmm. you just want to break a, a disease causing gene, right? Turn it off. Right. Sometimes you want to turn on a gene that is, or fix a gene that's broken, directly fix a mutation. One letter is leading to a problem. You want to change that letter to another, to another letter. And then sometimes you have more complicated genetic edits that need to be made, like repeats, for example, that cause a lot of neurodegenerative diseases. Maybe you want to get rid of them. And the Cas9 is pretty good at just turning off a gene, cutting a gene and turning it off. So to the extent that's what you need to have happen, Cas9 is probably going to work just fine. And then, but for if you have a mutation, a specific letter that needs to be changed to a different letter to, to change a broken gene to a normal gene, then you're not going to be able to do that readily with just standard Cas9. You're going to need tools like base editing or prime editing. So that's how I think about it. Um, yeah. And even in our own pipeline, we have base editors for the first two targets, PCSK9 and NGPTL3. But then for one of the other targets, LPA, we're developing a custom editor, a, a bespoke to that target, because it has some specific um, DNA sequence challenges. So I think that's how the field is going to go. A very product-focused, target-focused on what edit you want to make and what's the right tool for that edit. I want to just talk about you personally. We've worked together a little bit, but I wanted to take this opportunity to dive into your, your past a little bit. And you alluded to it, and I really did. I thought that was really interesting, that sort of 2016 proposal, and I think gives good uh, uh, transition into this. But you were a cardiologist for 24 plus years. Again, you've worked in the genetic space. What ultimately motivated you to take maybe even that that proposal or maybe any interest you had beforehand and actually jump into industry and, and be a, a CEO versus a scientific co-founder for a number of different places, just like Fang is and David as well? And why ultimately just be lead your own company? So I've only worked on one problem, Max, my whole life, which is heart attack. And that, that kind of the focus there has been scientific, but also some personal reasons, a strong family history of heart disease in my family. And I really wanted to, and it is the leading cause of death in the world and wanted to really make an impact on that. I started by trying to understand risk and resistance. So why some people have a heart attack at a young age, why some might be resistant And we looked at the DNA sequence to give us clues as to that. And that was about, I'd say, almost 20 years of work, both training in cardiology, understanding the disease process, and doing the human genetics. And all of that, Max, boiled down to just one simple research insight, that if your blood cholesterol is very low, lifelong, it's really hard to get a heart attack. The company, Verve, and my own efforts are born out of this deep conviction in this one insight, and this is the answer to heart attack. So when I got convinced about this kind of around the time in 2015-16 and had this opportunity to put all those ideas together in the context of that application, it became clear to me like, all right, if this is the answer, like why do anything else? Try to work. We had this great technology that actually could be potentially applied to develop medicines that mimic that natural situation I mentioned earlier, people who are resistant, you know? So we had a lot of interesting kind of things come together to, to say, to tell me at least that I should go do this. I should try this at least. And try could be in a number, a couple of different ways, Max. But at the end of the day, after we got all the resources together and, and started the company in 2018, I was still looking at it 
as potentially just staying on the sidelines advising, as you just mentioned, the scientific founder, uh, but not jump all in. But there was a fork in the road. And the reason I decided to come in again and do this and try to lead it is, again, I really thought there was be no better use of my time than trying to make this happen. And so that's really the genesis of kind of jumping in and fully realizing that 95% of biotechs fail. And But if we didn't get this to work, it would be a noble failure. How do you feel about, I, this is something that I never really considered until I was on a panel about it at Bio last year, speaking with scientific founders and who are lead their biotech as well. How do you think about that difference or difference in strategy of allowing a scientific uh, co-founder, particularly let's think about it in the genetic medicine space, considering that I think there is so much new research um, burgeoning there versus what we often see, which is that maybe after a company finishes its seed financing or even series A, that sort of a more institutional biotech executive or previous pharma executive will take over. How do you just think about what might be the best for this space and, and what investors should maybe consider when they're considering who should lead a, a genetic biotech, yeah. a gene editor? Yeah, that's a great question. And there, I don't, I don't think there's a generic answer, to be honest, because I'm a first-time CEO. I have 20-plus years of experience in uh, human genetics, in human biology, learning to be a cardiologist, and leading large research efforts to have a vision, raise resources, execute all toward solving scientific questions. So there was a lot there that potentially could have translated to leading a, a, a biotech that's developing a first-in-class modality. Mm -hmm. And so the, the, you can see why there's some advantages that I had coming in, but a lot of the disadvantages are I had no prior experience running a company. I had no prior experience doing drug development. So there are lots of risks there as well. So I think at the end of the day, it's probably going to be very individual-dependent and the environment dependent, to be honest, the support that this person can get in terms of their ability to succeed in the mission. And I've been grateful and very lucky to have amazing support as I started, particularly from not only the initial set of investors and their networks, but also the first few people we brought onto the team had a fair amount of experience uh, in a lot of the things that are needed in terms of running a business and particularly early stage biotech. I also had experience in, in R&D in, in early stage biotechs. You know, this right. is Andrew, Andrew Bellinger, Andrew Ash. So that team, that pe the people around me were incredibly important and helpful. So I, I think uh, there's probably not one good answer to say, hey, you know, scientific founders are the right thing for these kind of companies versus not. Right. Um, it's very much dependent on the individual and the context um, and the environment that they're put in. With some of the first executive decisions that you've made around R&D and the initial pipeline build, you have Verve 101 and Verve 102 sort of running in parallel right now and with the expectation that whichever essentially performs the best in, 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 a, in a phase one trial, you'll proceed that one into phase two. Just maybe expand on that thinking and strategy versus committing to one of the two of those just based off preclinical data? I think the answer to heart attack is to getting somebody's LDL very low for a long time. And very low, I mean 40, 50. And we have tools right now to lower somebody's cholesterol. Statin, PCSK9 antibody, monoclonal antibody, an SIRNA targeting PCSK9. So what's the problem we're trying to solve? 
Well, the challenge is that when you look at cardiovascular disease patients uh, and ask what fraction of patients, let's say 12 months out after starting one of these medicines, are still on it, it's only about 50%. Mm-hmm. Now, these med- medicines are intended to be taken lifelong to lower their LDL, but half the patients are not on the medication after a few months, I mean, by 12 months, only 50%. So why is that? Well, we can all think about all the different reasons why people are not ta- on medicines, uh, but it's all the issues to do with the chronic care model. We're right now expecting somebody to take daily pills or intermittent injections for decades to solve their problem. And adherence, access, and healthcare infrastructure needs huge number of issues as to why people are not able to manage that. So our idea is, what about if you can convert that chronic care model to a one-time procedure, one-time treatment, permanent lowering of cholesterol? Now, we know that's actually do, that's safe because of the people that I mentioned earlier that have the gene turned off naturally and have very low LDL. We also have medicines that have been targeting, for example, PCSK9 and work quite well. So we have pharmacologic validation for the hypothesis. We have the genetic validation. And now we have a tool, gene editing, to do that. The problem we're trying to solve is that chronic care model. And, and we're looking to do that essentially with the one-and-done one and done therapy. So we uh, have a set of targets we, we identified based on human genetics. The first one of those PCSK9. And for the PCSK9 target, we have two molecules, VERB 101 and VERB 102, that differ only in the delivery vehicle. The same editor, same guide. And 101 has a certain lipid nanoparticle. 102 has a a lipid nanoparticle that has a targeting ligand attached to it, a GALNAC targeting ligand, that has some theoretical benefit in terms of potential improvement in potency because it can get in to the liver cells using any of two receptors, not just one. So we looked at both of these molecules in in non-human primates, and they both look really good. And so our strategy has been to evaluate both in patients directly in phase one and pick one to take forward into later stages of development, because for this disease, heterozygous FH, a genetic form of high cholesterol, as well as heart attack, these are very large indications the later stages of development are going to be really expensive. So we wanted to directly do a bake-off in patients and then pick one to take forward. And that's been the strategy. So we so far, we have data for 101, or interim data, and, and we presented that. And there's, there's efficacy in, in, in about three patients that we've treated at potentially therapeutic doses. So early proof of concept that this whole thing can work. Now we're expanding that, that, that patient uh, uh, enrollment and um, we'll have that finished in 24 for 101. Meanwhile, we're starting 102 in the patients this year. We'll have um, that going this year. And we're also starting a, a third program in, the, in patients this year. So by the end of the year, Verve will have three cholesterol-lowering products, gene editing products in the clinic. And the first two target PCSK9. The third targets ANGPTL3. And heading into 25, really have clinical data probably for all three in, in good shape and reach the, our, some of the key inflection points, particularly around selecting one of the two, 101 or 102 to take to phase two. Just based off preclinical non-human primate data alone, you, 
it, it can't possibly give you the best sense of whether the targeting ligands potential improved potency works as you might think, but also whether that potency comes with extra side effects and whether that causes separate issues that you wouldn't be seeing in, in the primate data, or at least convincingly. So it's essentially to say, well, we have this idea about how this targeting ligand could potentially improve the therapy, but let's not commit to that one just based off preclinical data. Should there be increased side effects or whether it maybe doesn't even work as well as we think? So you needed human data to prove out that hypothesis more so than you could just in... That's a great summary, Max. Exactly. And recall, there's not a lot of examples of monkey to human translation for in vivo gene editing. Literally, it's two and of two. It's Intellia and us. Yeah. Nobody else has actually dosed humans to edit their liver with this kind of technology. And each lipid nanoparticle delivery system is unique. And we now have a sense of how the Verve 101 LNP is going to translate from monkey to human. And now we'll need to do that same assessment for 102 as well. And that's the plan for this year. I am so appreciative that you were willing to take the time and chat. You know that I'll be covering Verve and and everything else uh, that you and the team do throughout this year. I'm excited and uh, just really gracious that you were able to stop by and just dive deeper into this. Well, thank you so much. I really appreciate the opportunity to share the Verve story and uh, look forward to continuing to chat with you as the year progresses. That's it for The Top Line. I'm your host, Ayla Ellison. You can find out more about this topic in our show notes at fiercepharma.com. Look for podcasts. And that's the bottom line from the top line.